Hi, this is Yolanda. I'm sharing with you the memoirs of President Joseph Smith III, 1832 to 1914. And we're on um, page 297. I think we're just on the last couple of pages of chapter 30. And the heading, the section heading is Labouring Under Difficulty. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. On October the 1st, we drove to Hiram, where we were located at the house of a relative of Brother Anthony named Lilequist. Bishop Molen presided over the Hiram stake and treated us in a very friendly and respectful manner. I learned, incidentally, that though he was a polygamist with two wives, he had been unfortunate in having no children, which was considered as a withholding of divine favour in some way. He allowed no one to disturb or interrupt me in my service, nor did he permit anyone to follow me in speaking. I was careful to avoid taking ground which would create open antagonism or controversy. I met here for the first and only time a brother of Sister Mark H. Forscott. His name was James Unsworth, and he was a Church of England minister in charge of a congregation at Hiram. We thanked Bishop Molan for his kindness and the next day started again on our way with Milland as next objective. The night was spent at Uncle Asiel Thorns, a member of the church who, with his wife, had isolated himself from Utah church relationship and proposed to get out of it altogether as soon as possible. Traversing the road from Thorns to Uncle John Taylor's, some 12 miles, West of Ogden was a very trying and painful ordeal to me. I had taken a cold and was suffering most acutely from neuralgia. Every jar and jolt received in going over the stones kept my nerves jumping and jangling. I think I shall never forget one stretch of three-fourths of a mile of that road built on the side of, a, of the mountain. The roadbed was of rocks that, that had not been surfaced with small stones or gravel, and passing over it, either in the buggy or on foot, was absolute torture for me. I counted myself fortunate in finally reaching Brother Taylor's home, where rest and kind solicitous care awaited me. This Brother Taylor I have mentioned before as the one who was with me, who was with the saints in Zion's camp on Fishing River when they were afflicted with cholera. Though he had gone west, he had maintained his integrity and faith, and up to the time I visited him, neither he nor his wife had ever taken endowments, made application to go through the temple or receive any ordinances administered there. Being a Josephite in sympathy, he was, like many of the rest of us, classed as apostate. From Taylor's, the road was better, and we reached Brother Chase, Chase's at Ogden in good season. There I went under the kindly and expert nursing care of Sister Chase and her capable family. I was housed for nearly a month, suffering much, but finally began to gradually recuperate from the severity of my trouble and the fatigue incident in the rough mountainous trips. On October 23rd, we returned to Salt Lake City, where I was made a welcome guest at the home of Brother Joseph Wilson and received sympathetic care and nursing from him, his good wife Alice and her mother, sister Annie Robinson. 
Several trips were taken to nearby points as health and opportunity made themselves made them possible. According to my diary entries, my 57th birthday was spent in writing articles, visiting with C. Sumner Nichols, publisher, and attending prayer service in the evening. During these days, I had a number of visits with cousin John Henry Smith and other relatives. Next heading, Franklin D. Richards. On November the 13th, in a heavy snowstorm, we went to Leighton and from there on to Brother Chase's at Ogden once more, where we spent a few days in company with my cousin, Patriarch John Smith, who had come to Ogden to visit his daughter Lucy and her husband, Dr Ray Davis. I visited several people. One was Lauren Farr, whom I used to know at Nauvoo, a very pleasant man. On his library shelf, I saw a copy of the Holy Scriptures, the inspired version published by our church. I complimented him upon the fact that it showed evidence of being used considerably. He told me he had obtained a copy as soon as he, as soon as it came out, and that he had made it quite a study. At my request, cousin John went with me to visit Franklin D. Richards, assistant historian of the Mormon Church. At the gate, John suggested that perhaps I might not care to have him present at the interview. I asked him if he were not acquainted with Mr Richards, and he said he was. Well, I said, I should prefer to have you with me if you will. So we went in. We found Elder Richards sitting with his overcoat on and hoovering, oh, and hovering near the heating stove, suffering from rheumatism or lumbago. He seemed in much distress, especially when he tried to move about. Just as we were seated, his wife, the legal one, came in and introductions followed. She sat down near me and remained during the hour's conversation. After the usual preliminaries and compliments of the day, he asked me if I had any objection to his asking me a few questions. I told him I had not and that I was quite willing to answer any I could. To my surprise, his first question was, do you believe in the priesthood? Most assuredly. What priesthood do you believe in? In the two priesthoods described in the first edition of the Book of Covenants, printed 1835, section 3, also as published in Nauvoo in the subsequent edition, section 104, in those revelations, provisions are made for the Melchizedek and Aaronic priesthoods. He seemed somewhat surprised at my answer and asked, Do you people profess to have those priesthoods? Certainly we do, sir. We believe that the two priesthoods cover every office in the church from deacon to president, though different divisions of the priesthoods are named in the offices. There are men in our congregation who held all these different offices during the lifetime of my father and Uncle Hiram. Like myself, they are still in good standing in the faith they espoused, having never been directed to appear before any church tribunal to be tried for any misdemeanour or departure from that faith. They have never been disfellowshipped, nor are they in any sense apostate from the faith they received as taught in the church while my father and uncle Hiram were living. Therefore, these men have retained intact and unsullied their priesthood and its authority. He followed me closely and asked several more questions along those lines and about the details of the priesthood as we understood it. 
which queries I answered and explained in harmony with the revelations that had been received, establishing or naming the priesthoods and the various offices and duties therein. While I thought an expression of surprise was plainly visible upon his face now and then, I saw too that he had a friendly interest in asking me the questions and in listening to my answers. While I thought an expression of surprise was plainly visible, sorry I've read that twice, um, later he asked me some things about my mother and father, which I answered frankly. I told him we of the reorganisation felt we had nothing whatsoever to conceal, never attempted to cover up or hide anything that had been done and were neither afraid nor ashamed to avow our faith and explain its detail, details anywhere to anybody and un, under any circumstances. Mrs Richards, reaching over and laying her hand on my arm, said, Brother Joseph, it is not worth while to have anything in our religion that we are ashamed of or afraid to explain, is it? I looked at her steadily a moment, watching the colour come and go in her face and the tears standing in her eyes. Then I glanced at her husband to see what he might think of her remark, but he seemed placid, placid enough. No, Sister Jane, it is not, and so far I have discovered nothing whatever in the faith left by my father and Uncle Home of which any honest man need be ashamed. I could feel from the relaxation of the woman's hand as it lay upon my arm that she had experienced a sense of relief from nerve tension, caused no doubt by the turn the conversation had taken. I had known of Apostle Richards at Nauvoo and had always regarded him as an earnest, honest man. He had become, I was told, a practical polygamist, this first wife Jane standing by him through all the experiment, though having been having been understood to oppose the doctrine and protest against the conditions it forced upon her. How true was this report, of course, I could not know, except as I could gather her sentiments from the tremor from the tenor of the conversation that took place in their home. Excuse my stumbling over my words there. Elder Richards was very frank and friendly and spoke quite feelingly during our talk. He did not attempt to interrupt his wife nor show any desire to restrain her comments or change the trend of the questions and answers. Of course, I could not determine what motive he had in asking me what he did, though I felt he might have had an idea that we held some adverse or untenable views in regard to the priesthood. I told him directly and fairly that we accepted the exception on priesthood just as it stood, believing that while the offices differed so far as their duties and activities were concerned, the priesthood itself was the same, the one covering the entire Melchizedek order and the other the Aaronic the two comprising all the offices placed or needed in the church. He did not interrupt me nor attempt to correct the view I expressed, seeming to regard my explanation as fairly stated. This conversation interested me deeply as I noticed it did my cousin also. I think our interview lasted for an hour or more. When I expressed a fear that I might be imposing on him in his illness, I was met by the frank statement that they were pleased that I had called Sister Richards expressing herself with especial warmth in this regard. 
The thought occurred to me at the time that it was barely possible that Elder Richards might seek to take advantage of our interview in some way and write in for some of their church papers, state or include include in our conversation that which might counteract what I had publicly presented, or that he might, by argument, try to overturn what I had said. But if he ever alluded to my visit in any way, I never learned of it. As assistant historian of the Mormon Church, she had written a chapter for the book, What the World Believes, in which she outlines the faith and partial history of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In that chapter, in referring to Joseph Smith's alleged connection with plural marriage, he stated that it was understood, italics um, added, that Joseph Smith's wives, other than his wife Emma, how were, so and so and so and so. I consider this statement made in such a public and permanent form was a tacit acknowledgement that he, at least as historian, had no reliable information that he could there record, which implicated my father either as the one who introduced the doctrine of plural marriage in the church or one who was himself guilty of practising it. I went out from this interview with Elder Richards with the conviction that the natural good qualities of the man had been badly perverted through the dominating influence of those whom he considered his superiors by spiritual right. Having this impression then, I still cannot divest myself of the belief that he, as well as his wife, had become fully satisfied that they had been parties to and participators in a cruel deception and, oh, perpetuated by men who claimed that under the legitimate priesthood of God they had a right to practice that which can only correctly be denominated a wicked corruption of priestcraft. As Cousin John and I went out from this interview and homeward, we met several persons to whom he introduced me, always referring to me as my cousin Joseph Smith, president of the reorganised church. I left him at his son-in-law's and went on to Chase's, intending to have another visit with him. To my disappointment, when I reached their place the next afternoon, I learned he had gone back to Salt Lake City that morning. Chatting with his daughter Lucy, she quite surprised me by asking, Cousin Joseph, what did you and father have to drink when you were out together yesterday? Why, nothing, Lucy, not a thing, not even a glass of water. Why? Well, I never saw father so excited as he was when he came when you came back, except when he had taken a little liquor. He seemed curiously disturbed and walked up and down the floor, telling us all about your visit to Richard's house and about his having introduced you to different persons. And he said quite positively, I tell you, my cousin Joseph is not ashamed of his belief, nor afraid to state it to anybody. I heard him answer Richard's questions concerning his faith and their organisation, which showed quite a different position from that which our leaders have stated he held. I am not ashamed to introduce him as the president of the reorganised church. In fact, I am proud of him. I told Lucy I was much pleased to hear it, for I had wondered just what her father had thought of my conversation with Elder Richards. From what she said, I am satisfied that I had made no mistake in taking him along to hear what I had to say in the interview. Next heading, in and near the city. Following this visit to Franklin D. Richards, 
I did a good deal of visiting among members of the church in and near Salt Lake City. I also wrote several articles for the papers and filled some preaching engagements. At some of the meetings in our little chapel, Cousin John and his wife were in attendance. It is fair to state too that he and my cousins John Henry and Samuel made several donations of money to me as missionary and that none of them ever swerved from their personal friendship for me. One of my appointments was at Plain City, where I occupied in an old house, another made at the solicitation of Brother John Weaver, who lived near, was at Leighton, where an effort was made to secure the ward meeting house for my services. Bishop Brimhall, however, refused this request of Brother Weaver and Brother Anthony. At the time, he was under the influence of liquor and very forcibly stated that he would not consent to let the prophet's son use the meeting house, that the public schoolhouse was open and he could use that. When Brother Weaver asked him why, he denied the use of the building. He said, why? Because that son of the prophet could do us more harm here than the devil himself. I just will not let him have the house under any consideration. Of course, we had to be content with what we could get and I occupied in the said schoolhouse for two nights. Perhaps the chief incident to recall about this effort is that some half dozen men gathered at one side of the building and kept up a continued conversation during all the time I was speaking. Notwithstanding they were request were requested to desist because they were disturbing the meeting. They kept up this flagrant act of discourtesy and ill-breeding throughout. I may have neglected to state that at Ogden also the use of the Mormon tabernacle had been refused me even when application therefore had been made by a retired merchant named Mercer who had believed he had sufficient influence with the presiding authorities to obtain the desired permission. Early in December we made a brief stop in Pleasant Grove on our way to fill an appointment at American Fork. This was where Dr. Ed Isaacson lived, about whom I have already written. He was the German and Greek scholar who, upon the occasion of my former visit to Pleasant Grove, followed my discourse by a very glowing and excited speech in which he decried the infatuation which had misled me, gave me an urgent invitation to return to the fold of the Mother Church and closed his peritation, I don't know what that says, um, with the pathetic plea, come home to us, Brother Joseph, come home to us. I have related the incidents of my visit to him when I had been forewarned by a spiritual voice to take my doctrine and covenants along with me. In the discussion that followed lunch in his home, I found I needed that book of revelations. I recall that in dealing with the subject of plural marriage at that time, I had been led to present the views of the reorganisation on the same lines of thought and argument which had been spiritually presented to me when I wrote the track called One Wife or Many. Before our visit was over, the doctor confessed that he was at the end of his defence, admitted that so far as the foundation of the work of the church was concerned, under the administration of Joseph and Holmes Smith, the position we occupied was correct and the son of the prophet, as I was usually called in the territory, was right. I have also related that Dr Isaacson 
left that locality under a cloud. He certainly was a very talented man. Like a good many foreigners, he spoke three or four languages easily and was a good scholar both in his native law and in English. From the day of my visit, I had anticipations that the doctor might possibly retrace his steps and make good the wrong he did, but a quarter of a century has now passed, and as yet I have not learnt that he has so redeemed himself. Returning to Salt Lake City from American Fort on the American Fork on the train, I made the acquaintance of Samuel Eastman. In some manner he had learned of my former visit to Dr Isaacson, and he asked me a number of questions which I tried to answer helpfully. I outlined the position assumed by our church on the question of polygamy. To my surprise, he expressed himself much as did Elder Barrett on the occasion of that visit to Isaacson. While I believe the theory of polygamy is right, I do not believe it has been practised greatly. I challenged Mr Eastman on this confession as I had Barrett and asked him to name, if he could, any result of the practice that had been of any benefit for any one or to any group, or had served to establish a better class of humanity than could be found under the rules of monogamy, as had been claimed. It was well known the Twelve had divided the country into wards and districts, and had appointed their own sons to take charge of them as worthy expounders and splendid examples of the benefits of the plural marriage system. I challenged Mr Eastman to name any one of those sons who was superior to, or even the equal of, his father in intelligence and force of character. This, he admitted, was difficult to do. Our conversation was pleasant and friendly in tone, though pursued in much earnestness. He was ready to concede the points I made and very free to ask questions, and I quite as ready and free to help him to the best of my ability. I did not learn where he had received information about my visit to Isaacson some years before, but he had evidently been much disturbed by what had there been discussed and admitted. Last section before the end of chapter 30. Ed Eastward and Home by the middle of December, Elder Anthony and I had finished our labours in the West and had started homeward. He too, well, Wilbur, Nebraska, and I to Lamoni, which place I reached on the 19th after having spent some 13 months away from home on the master's business. The routine of home and office work was again resumed and the year of 1889 well rounded out. A Christmas gift came to me that year when I may which I may mention here, among the old-time saints, those who had been members in my father's time, was a special friend, Sister Eliza Page. Her maiden name was Lucy. I knew her family in Nauvoo, and remember that one of her brothers, Daniel G., lived below that city for a number of years. Sister Page was a very pleasant, though somewhat eccentric woman, well known to a number of Lamoni saints' residents. She had been a widow for many years, was faithful to her church obligations and always generous to missionaries. As an evidence of her personal regard for me, she presented me with a valuable gold stopwatch that had once been the property of her son, then deceased. The gift reached me from the hand of Bishop Blakesley and was very much appreciated. On the last Sabbath of the year, I had the privilege of blessing Emma Rebecca, first and only child of my daughter, Carrie Weld, this girl, unmarried, still lives with her parents in Lamoni. 
that's the end of chapter 30. Thank you for joining me.